Julie Daubeny was a bisexual fencer and opera singer who some say burned down a convent to escape with her partner, one of the nuns. Her life was wild, though short, and at times exaggerated for a good story. So let's try digging into who Julie really was and learn the facts, which as they turn out, may be more interesting than the fiction. Hello and welcome to Prism of the Past, a semi-weekly series about historical events, people, and situations from the fascinating to the forgotten. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about Julie Diabony. Every once in a while, I find out about this really interesting historical figure that I just had no idea existed. And her life is absolutely fascinating, full of twists and turns, and someone that I'm very excited to talk about. So let's get into it. Julie was born around 1670 to 1673. Her father was a secretary for King Louis XIV's master of horse, Count d'Armanac, one of France's greatest nobles. Other sources write Comte, not Count, but it's the same man. The title of master of the horse simply means that this person would be the third dignitary in court and all matters connected with the horses and hounds of the sovereign, as well as the stables, coach houses, stud, mews, kennels, and the like are within their jurisdiction. In France, this position was known as the Grand Squire of France and the office existed until Louis XVI's reign. The point is her father was close with some incredibly important people. It's said that Julie first lived in the riding school at Toulouse Palace in Paris before moving with the court to the Palace of Versailles in 1682, when she would have been about 10 years old. However, while her father worked in this royal luxurious court, Julie was growing up in the great stables. And this wasn't just some barn, of course, it was the royal stables and they were massive. According to one source, the opulent furnishings, gilded halls and scenic gardens of Versailles are legendary. Less known is La Grande Ecurie, one of the royal stables that once housed more than 2,000 horses for the court of Louis XIV. Designed by Jules Hardouin Mansart, the royal architect responsible for Versailles Hall of Mirrors, the Ecuries were one of the most ambitious livery construction projects ever undertaken by a monarch. Commissioned by the king and constructed over three short years from 1679 to 1682, this magnificent horse arena became one of the most important features of the court, a place where the arts truly flourished, paving the way for classical dance as we know it today. Their proximity within grounds meant that each discipline influenced the other. This was not just because fencing, riding, and ballet require superb physical coordination and grace, but also because all three, not to mention painting, music, and sculpture at the time, were based on the harmony of the spheres, the ancient Greek concept revived during the European Renaissance that art, music, and bodily movement were attempts to reflect the cosmic workings of the universe based on mathematical principles. Measured ways of walking and bowing, for example, placed court behavior above that of tavern or country fair, at once mirroring the cosmos and underscoring the nobility's societal hierarchy through the complex rules of etiquette. This was a place where fencing, riding, dance, and the arts as a whole thrived. Julie too thrived there and was said to excel at fencing from an early age. Around this time when she was about 12 years old or so, she started dressing like a boy so she could compete against other boys and men. 
Fencing wasn't unheard of among women, but competing against men was. However, just a few short years later, when she was around 14 or 15, Julie's life changed. She became the mistress of Louis de Lorraine, her father's employer. Now, there's little to no information out there about how her relationship with her father's employer began. Many of my sources simply say that she caught his eye and then just move on to the next stage in her life. I have no idea what the relationship was, but the man was around his mid forties or so when he was sleeping with her. So it's a bit gross. One source describes this whole scenario a bit oddly and it reads, growing up among men and boys, fierce Julie noticed quite early that she could not just command her own rapier, but also theirs with a coy glance or a flutter of dark lashes. Even so, she was between 14 and 15 years old. She became the mistress of her father's master. The Count was around 30 years older than her, married, and at the time, the proud father of 14 children. He was still very handsome and a man with great manners and elegance. Julie took his heart by storm. He introduced Julie to the court and the world, spoiled her with presents and took her to entertainments. But even for a man of his rank and status, having such a young mistress and unmarried one on top of it was not too good for the reputation. So Louis went in search of a husband for Julie so that their affair could continue. And yes, you're hearing that right. At least that's what some sources say. Others say it was her father who wanted her to be married, possibly because he found out about the affair. Generally speaking though, you'll hear quite a few different versions of events when it comes to Julie's dad. Some say he was dismayed by her actions and dressing as a boy, whereas others say he passed on his fencing skills as well as drinking and gambling vices to her. Anyway, regardless of whether or not her father approved doesn't really matter much because unfortunately around this time, not only was Julie married, but her father also passed away. From here on out, she became known as Le Maupin as she married a clerk known as Sir Jean de Maupin. Julie's new husband was a tax collector and it's said that D'Armanac promptly sent him away after Julie and Maupin were married so that they could continue their affair. Others say that it could be Julie who basically encouraged her new husband to get away so she'd have lax supervision. We're not sure what happened here. But again, whatever the case may be, whoever dispatched him, Julie pretty clearly did not love him. And it seems she wasn't satisfied by Louis anymore either. Apparently, while haunting the stables and fencing halls, Maupin fell passionately in love with an aspiring master swordsman, Henry. After a time, they took the road to Marseille where he claimed to have property. One version of the story says Armanac persuaded M. de la Reine, the Paris chief of police, to pressure Henry to leave, then became furious when Julie went too. Others say Henry had fallen afoul of la Reine because he had killed a man in a duel behind a church of the Carmelites, or because he and another gallants had a run-in with a patrol. This journey to Marseille and her experience once there proved to be the turning point in Maupin's life. In Marseille, she discovered her future vocation and her bisexuality. Whether she had cross-dressed before is uncertain, but on the journey, she did so. She cross-dressed frequently, having no trouble passing as a boyish cavalier due to her figure and her ease in a masculine environment. Once in Marseille, if not on the way, Henry confessed he had no property there. Maupin forgave him. To survive, they gave fencing exhibitions in taverns, advertising her as a woman despite her attire. According to a famous anecdote, when a heckler called out that she was really a man, she settled the question by tearing open her shirt. To keep going, they added singing to their show since they both had fine voices. 
They traveled the countryside doing what they could to get by by singing and fencing. As it turned out, opera singing was something Julie also had a knack for. So she decided to pursue her dreams and audition for none other than the Marseille Academy of Music and start a new chapter in her life. Pierre Gautier, a friend of Jean-Baptiste Lully, the premier opera composer in France was Julie's trainer. Her lover Henry was hired as well, though it's said that their relationship didn't last either and ended around this time when she began breaking into the opera world. As one source puts it, though she had no formal music training, her pleasing voice, natural gift for music and physical attractiveness enabled her to take some roles at the recently founded Opera de Marseille. A lack of a formal musical education was not a hindrance for an opera career at the time, and her natural singing and acting talent and prodigious memory compensated for her inexperience. Opera was massive at this time. Opera singers were the celebrities, the entertainers, and Julie was on her way to becoming one of them. One young woman in particular seemed to admire Julie's performances and the two of them fell in love. But of course, the young woman's parents were having none of it. She's just described as a beautiful blonde youth with only one source giving the name possibly being Cecilia Bortagalli. So unfortunately, I have no other details about this woman. It's said that her parents apparently sent her away to a convent in Avignon to separate the two. Julie, undeterred, posed as a postulant nun and entered the convent herself to resume the affair. So yeah, she broke into a convent to be with the woman she loved. However, obviously Julie and this woman didn't wanna stay there. So they hatched a plan to escape. When an elderly nun died, Julie stole the body and placed it on top of her lover's bed, setting a fire to disguise the corpse before they fled. Presumably this was to make everyone believe that her blonde lover died in a fire when in actuality, they had escaped to be together. One source writes, the affair only lasted three months before either Julie tired of the girl or the girl tired of the privations of life on the road. Either way, she returned to her family in Marseille. Once her tale was told, a tribunal was convened and Julie was convicted in her absence of body snatching, kidnapping a nun and arson against a convent. The sentence was death by burning. Julie had become a fugitive. Though she was wanted for some pretty intense crimes, Julie continued to have some incredible adventures. She continued singing in taverns and met a drunk cavalier at a tavern that she challenged to a duel. Apparently he'd been crudely hitting on her after her singing and asked, I've listened to your chirping, but now tell me of your plumage, which as one source claims is sort of a 17th century way of asking like, does the carpet match the drapes? It's said that she fought this man and his two friends before she ran him clear through the shoulder. Just as he was stunned to learn she was a woman, she was stunned to learn that her opponent had been a young nobleman, Count d'Albert. Some say that D'Albert was actually the great romance of her life and others say they were just lovers. And when he was recovered, he received orders to join the army and so they parted. Some sources also claim that even in the following years, she continued sleeping with Albert and at one point threatened to blow the brains out of another woman he was sleeping with. She even did this in a church while the woman was in prayer. Albert and Julie continued on after this. He even sent her a touching poem at one point while he was in the army, but he continued sleeping with other women, so they didn't last. Julie wasn't done with the opera though, and she wouldn't be on the run for long. After her initial encounter with Comte d'Albert, she took singing lessons from a retired teacher and paired with a new lover who also fancied himself as a singer. 
Maricol was her instructor for some time and he did encourage her to apply to the Paris Opera, but it's said that his drinking interfered with his ability to teach. So Julie left for Paris with her lover, Gabriel Vincent. One source states, Together, they returned to Paris and on their first day there, while Julie was visiting her old lover, Diarmenac, to convince him to arrange a pardon for her little indiscretion in Provence, Thévenard auditioned for the opera and was hired immediately. His condition was that Julie also be allowed to audition and the opera reluctantly agreed. So by the age of 17, she found herself a member of one of the world's greatest musical companies. Some sources state that Julie was in fact pardoned and went on to appear in these major opera productions, whereas other sources say that she didn't have instant success. King Louis XIV apparently found her tales amusing, so she was permitted to enter the city. But she had to befriend a retired singer named Bovar to get her a second audition. Thankfully, she got in and began to rebuild her opera life anew, building a new name for herself as La Maupin. La Maupin's Paris debut was at the role of Palace in a December 1690 revival of Lully's first opera. The main draw for this production was the appearance of star soprano Marie La Rocha in the little role of Hermione. La Rocha had been performing roles for Lully and other top composers with the Paris Opera since 1678. Quite the opposite of La Maupin, her reputation was built on her artistic skills as a trained musician rather than her offstage exploits. La Maupin's notoriety had preceded her and this as much as her singing talent caused a sensation at her debut. After finishing her part, La Maupin acknowledged the audience's approval by doffing her helmet and bowing, allowing her long blonde hair to flow over her shoulders, thereby inspiring even more frenzied applause. Debuting three years after Lully's death, she was to sing in revivals of most of the great composer's operas throughout her career. Between 1690 and 1694, she appeared in many major productions for the Paris Opera, becoming famous under the stage name La Maupin. But Julie unfortunately was not done with scandal yet. Once again, sources kind of disagree on how exactly these controversies around her happened, but the thread is generally the same. One source claims that there was a singer named Monsieur Dumenil who thought he was superior to his female colleagues and Julie. Tired of his comments, she challenged him to a duel while dressed as a man. He refused, so she beat him up with a cane, then stole his watch and snuff box. Apparently the next day, Dumenil made a fuss about how he was assaulted by three strong men the previous night and Julie called him out and proved it to everyone by returning his watch and snuff box. It's said that everyone except him found this hilarious. Of course, there were far more known scandals that took place around this time, like in 1695. This source claims that Julie wasn't concealing her gender, though she was dressed in a court and breeches when she went to a ball and asked a noblewoman to dance. One source states that while dressed as a man at a court ball, she kissed a woman that three noblemen were seeking. Whether she was disguised as a man or a woman, the events thereafter are the same. The men challenged her to a fight and she defeated all three in fencing duels. What a badass. It is worth noting though, that my sources also disagree on if she actually killed these men or not, which well, would probably be the reason dueling was illegal to begin with. Apparently, Julie was worried that she would face arrest, but yet again, Louis XIV was amused by her antics and didn't arrest her because after all, the laws against dueling were directed towards men, not women. A separate source says that this was Louis XIV's brother that reminded him of this, but regardless, Julie got away with dueling yet again. 
Just to be safe though, and considering that all the nobles weren't exactly thrilled with her for this, she fled to Brussels, where she stirred up even more trouble over there. There she had an affair with Maximilian Emmanuel, the ruler of Bavaria. When the affair ended, he sent the husband of his new mistress around 40,000 livers to pay off Julie. Enraged, she threw the purse at his head and chased him out of the house. When he returned, he found her and the money gone. Pride was pride, but 40,000 was a lot of money after all. Other sources state, escaping to Brussels, she resumed her singing career, appearing in the Opera du Quai Afon between the late 1697 and mid 1698. Her wild behavior showed no sign of abating. During a suicide scene with Johann Wolfgang Frank and Nice, Le Maupin intentionally stabbed herself with a dagger. During her stay in Brussels, she was the mistress of the Elector of Bavaria. Finding her too much to handle, he offered her 40,000 francs to leave him. She left to return to Paris, but threw the money at the Elector's feet as a parting gesture. Apparently stabbing yourself on stage during an opera is just a little too much to handle. Not sure I can exactly blame the Elector for that one if I've gotta be honest, but hey, either way, this escapade, Julie finished her time in Brussels and decided it was time to go back home. Sometime before returning to France, the affair of the radishes occurred. One story that states how needing money to return to Paris, she became a maid to the wife of a royal minister. Once she saved enough money, she took her revenge on the woman by pinning small fresh radishes to the back of her head to make her look bad at a ball. When this countess returned home, Julie was gone, off to Paris again. It's said that upon her return, Julie went straight to her old ways for which she was known for. She was said to defend chorus girls against leecherous barons and pompous tenors, yet she again was falling in love and she was once more shedding blood on the stage. It's said that she resumed her operatic career just in time for the star Le Rocher retired from the stage in 1698. With Le Rocher, the star soprano we mentioned earlier, now living a quiet life teaching music, Le Maupin was able to take more leading roles and her operatic career reached its peak between 1698 and 1705. Her offstage dueling and romantic escapades ensured that her name was well-known even among non-opera goers as the subject of gossip and popular songs. Her old lover, Theovard, who helped get her hired at the Paris Opera in 1690 was still with the company. Reacquainted, the couple resumed their tempestuous relationship on and off stage. During one of their spats, Le Maupin bit his ear during a performance, drawing blood. One of these roles in 1701 was an opera called Tancred, written specifically for Julie. The story was set in the Crusades where a warrior princess falls in love with a crusader knight. They were supposed to be mortal enemies, but the warrior princess puts their rivalry aside to foil a plot on the knight's life, only for him to accidentally kill her when she is masked on the battlefield. Around this time, Julie was described as having the most beautiful voice in the world, even as her illegal dueling continued unabated. She is also said to have performed at chamber events and parties for the king and nobility around this time, even as her landlord, another lover of Julie's, was apparently dealing with the police on her behalf. Other sources disagree about her relationship with her landlord and say that she actually assaulted him by throwing a hunk of mutton at him. One reads, an incident on September 6, 1700, illustrates how dangerous it could be to cross Maupin. Arriving famished about 9 p.m. at her magnificent apartment on the Rue after a performance, she descended to the kitchen and demanded a meal. 
Her landlord refused, saying meals were not part of her lease. She thereupon pulled a hunk of mutton off a spit taken from an oven and flung it at him, hitting the door through which he was beating a retreat. The cook, a woman, brandished the spit, so Maupin struck her with a huge door key and with her sister, doubtless a current partner, and three lackeys floored her with kicks and punches. A justice of the peace presently arrived and ended the brawl. Witnesses gave depositions the next day, but for some reason, the case was filed away. I've got to wonder if it was filed away because she was such a famous opera singer at the time, honestly. I mean, we talk about how celebrities can get away with things now. I've got to wonder if it was true back then too. But not only was she throwing mutton chops at her landlords, but she was breaking all sorts of rules and she was also making music history. Tancred, it is believed, was the first French opera in which the principal female was not a soprano. Yet as iconic and badass as Julie may be, she was as much a lover as she was a fighter. It's said that Julie fell in love with that star soprano, Marie LaRoche. Then later she became smitten by Francon Moreau. It's said that she was genuinely devastated when Francon refused her advances and that she may have even attempted suicide as a result. Some say her husband, and I know we almost forgot about him, right? Returned around this time by 1701, but he died literally a few years later. Apparently he ignored her sexual escapades and Julie operated under the belief that stolen fruit tastes sweeter and continued having affairs, though they lived together amicably. Yet despite all these affairs and scandals and messes that she found herself in, ultimately Julie was ready to settle down. And so she did with the most beautiful woman in all of Paris. Julie was made for perils as well as tenderness as she wrote in a 1703 letter. And it was in 1703 that she left the perils behind and fell in love with Madame de Marquis de Florensac, the most beautiful woman in France. It said that she was so beautiful that the Dauphine, the eldest child of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette was obsessed with her. La Florensac and Julie were said to have lived together in perfect harmony for two years, the longest continuous romantic relationship of Julie's life. After all, they both fled to Brussels to avoid royalty before, so they had plenty to bond over. However, tragedy struck. In May, 1705, Le Maupin debuted what was to be her last role as Isabelle in La Vivienne by the famous flautist, Michael de la Barre. Known more as an instrumentalist than a composer, Labar wrote a series of 18 books of solo flute music, the first such music published for flute. During the run of Labar's opera, de Florensac became ill with fever and died two days later on July 2nd. Devastated by the loss, Le Maupin retired from the stage. Julie, according to most sources, entered a convent after her lover died, for real this time and not to burn it down. Some say she passed away at age 33, others say she was in her mid thirties and one source claims she was 37. While some say she may have founded a chapel or a hospice and moved to province, those accounts have been considered unlikely. It's said that when she died, her body was cast upon the rubbish heap at the convent, though ultimately she just sort of slipped away into anonymity for the rest of her life. So we can't say for certain. Even though one of my sources mentioned her husband dying, as I mentioned earlier, others say that she actually may have simply lived in relative peace and quiet with her husband before passing away. Everything from her birth date to place of birth and even her real name have been subject to speculation over the years. While her professional name was Mademoiselle Maupin, cheered by crowds as La Maupin, acquaintances addressed her as Emile in her letters, and Thivenot called her Julia. 
She's also been known as Madame de Maupin and Madeleine, though she's most known as Julie d'Aubigny. There have been multiple novels written about Julie though, ultimately, and there's still so much about her that's unknown and pure speculation. In 1835, Théophile Gautier wrote a famous novel whose main character is based on her. This book has actually been banned and is described in the New York Times as a classic of erotic literature, thronged with gallants and with coquettes, all afroth with laces and petticoats and corseted within an inch of their lives. Then a book called La Maupin, a thoroughly researched investigation of her life was written in 1904. And Kelly Gardiner wrote about her life in a book called Goddess in 2014. Goddess has been given a ton of praise in recent years and it will be coming to the big screen soon. So I absolutely cannot wait to see that movie when it's released. Not only has Julie affected opera history, but she honestly was just kind of one of my new low-key favorite people to learn about, a bisexual fencer and well-known opera singer. Though her life was short, her legacy will absolutely live on. But with all of that being said though, that's where I'm ending today's episode of Prism of the Past. I hope you learned something new. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, let me know your thoughts about it. Thank you for spending a bit of your time with me here today and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.